uh, Exodus and our study of the life of Moses. And I'm going to uh, read starting in chapter 11. You should find an outline on the back of your bulletin. There are printed uh, messages uh, available at the exits. You can grab one now or later, and those are online as well. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 11.1, 1, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh in Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed uh, in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I'm going out in the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will Go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are to take each one a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each one, uh, each man should eat, you're to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel, that's the top piece of the houses in which they eat. Then uh, they shall they eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, 
both its head and its legs, along with its entrails, and you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, or Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then I'm not going to read it for sake of time, but to go on, it describes the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is to follow the um, Passover. And then Moses calls the elders and instructs them to go take care of the Passover. Jumping down to verse 24 um, of chapter 12, you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go. Worship the Lord, as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go. And bless me also. And then the text ends by describing how the Egyptians, in fact, urged everyone to go and gave them uh, gold and silver and articles of clothing and so on, and uh, a fulfillment of what God had promised. I think that uh, sometimes we toss around biblical terms without very thinking very carefully about what they mean. Uh, for example, if you uh, take the word salvation, it's a good word, biblical word. I think though we throw it around so often, we may not think deeply about what does it mean to be saved. For example, let me ask this question. Does God's killing all the firstborn of Egypt strike you as being overly harsh or perhaps extreme or maybe even unfair of God? I mean, killing Pharaoh's firstborn, yeah, the guy was a scoundrel. He had persecuted Israel. He had uh, killed their firstborn, their sons, as we know. 
Uh, he had oppressed Israel for years. But to kill all the firstborn, I mean, uh, if that seems somewhat harsh to you, then I'm going to suggest maybe you need to think a little more deeply about what it means to be saved. To understand salvation, we have to back up and understand who God is and who we are. The Bible shows that God is the infinitely holy sovereign of the universe. He spoke all that is into existence by the word of his power, and it all exists for his glory. He created the first man, Adam and Eve, made in his image to reflect his glory. But that first couple rebelled against God. They listened to the lie of Satan. They disobeyed God's direct command. Uh, and because of their disobedience, God imposed the penalty that he had warned them about in Genesis 2.17 in the day that you eat from it, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. God didn't great God graciously didn't strike Adam and Eve dead on the spot. He could have done that. But instantly they were separated from God, which is spiritual death, to be separated from God in relationship. And the process of physical death was set into motion. Uh, everyone since then, the Bible says, is born in sin because of Adam's sin and born subject to death, born separated from God. No one is born in fellowship with God. We are separated from him. And in addition to just our original sin that we inherit from Adam, I'm sure that every single one of us, me included, has piled up a significant list of our own sins in rebellion against this holy creator and God. God is not obligated to save any sinner uh, from his just penalty of eternal separation from him because we all deserve his judgment. But because of his mercy and love and grace, he has provided a way of salvation. He sent his own eternal son, second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he bore the penalty on the cross that we deserve. And because he paid that price, as Paul puts it in Romans 3.26, God now can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in a nutshell, that's the meaning of that word salvation. We are rescued, delivered from God's just penalty for our sin through the substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now God's final plague on Egypt and his providing for Israel a way to be saved from that plague and delivered from slavery in Egypt is a picture for us of how God saves sinners spiritually. 
Um, for example, just as Moses warned Pharaoh that the penalty, if he refused to let Israel go, would be the death of his firstborn, so God has warned all, Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. That is God's consistent warning to us. God didn't just warn Pharaoh once. He gave him nine plagues leading up to that tenth plague. And through those nine plagues, God demonstrated that he is able and he will keep what he promised or warned that he would do if they refused to obey him. And in the similar way, God has warned us. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but you look around and people seem to die. Uh, it's pretty consistent, you know. If you know anybody who has lived forever, we all die. That is a warning to us. Every time a loved one dies, every time we read about a death, we should realize there is the warning. God is giving warning, folks. It's coming. Uh, in addition to that, uh, as you get older, your body begins to warn you. Things are happening in this body And they aren't for the better. They are definitely on the downhill slope. But even if you're young, you could die today. We are that vulnerable to death. Walk out the door, a bus careens up off the curb, and you are in eternity. It is a daily possibility, and God gives us gracious warnings about our frailty, how we are subject to death. And that means we need a Savior, one to deliver us from facing eternal death, God's just punishment. And just as God provided the Passover lamb for Israel to be delivered from this tenth plague, so God sent his own Son as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of everyone who believes in him. And so this story teaches us that God's means of saving his people is the blood of an acceptable sacrifice, and that blood is to be applied to each individual by obedient faith. Four things that we see in this story that I want to bring out this morning. We see the people who need salvation. We see the penalty for ignoring God's means of salvation. We see the provision for God's salvation, and then we see the application of God's salvation. So let's note first the people. And the people who need salvation are slaves. Israel, of course, was they were literally slaves and had been for centuries under these cruel tyrant pharaohs. Their parents, their grandparents had been slaves for as long as anyone could remember. Uh, During the time of Moses' birth, you'll remember that Pharaoh gave the order to kill all of the Israeli babies, but Moses was uh, delivered from that through becoming the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Years later, when Moses was called to go and tell Pharaoh to let Israel go, Israel's condition as slaves got worse because Pharaoh made them make the same quota of bricks without uh, gathering straw for them, and the situation got much worse. And so 
Israel knew their miserable condition. We are slaves to Pharaoh. And they knew they needed deliverance from bondage. And that's a picture, again, of the universal human condition. We are all born, the Bible says, in slavery to sin. We are captives in Satan's domain of darkness. Jesus said in John 8:34, truly, truly, that's always a heads up when he says that, pay attention to this, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Uh, I don't think anybody here would say, I've never committed a sin. That means we all were born slaves of sin. And Paul also in Romans 6 describes our condition outside of Christ as being slaves of uh, sin. Now the problem is this. Many people, most people I would say, who are slaves of sin don't even know the fact that they are slaves of sin. They don't realize it. If you told them you're a slave to sin, they'd go, huh? Uh, you know, hey, man, I, I'm doing fine. I, they're not walking around in chains, making bricks with an evil taskmaster, whipping them, their backs with his whip when they don't meet their quotas. Uh, life is good. You know, we just rafted down the river with 30 slaves to sin, and uh, they're having a great time. Life is good. They're drinking their booze. They're enjoying the, the trip. They're having a wonderful time in life. You know, they have a comfortable homes. Most of them have two or more cars, plenty to eat, paid vacations, good retirement plans. And uh, they don't look like slaves, and they don't feel like slaves. And so they don't see their need for salvation. I mean, that might be nice, salvation for all you religious types, you know, but frankly, they want the freedom, they think, to run their own lives. Uh, weekends, hey, I want to be free, man. I can do what I want to do any weekend. Um, it's all those religious types who are slaves. They got to go to church. Money, I like to spend my money as I like to spend my money, thank you. And I don't want to feel obligated to give to uh, the church, thanks. That, those people, they're the ones who are enslaved. And so, you know, they, their attitude is, who needs that? I'm free. Those guys are enslaved. So the question is then, how do we tell the good news of salvation to slaves who don't even know they're slaves and don't even feel like they're slaves and would probably argue that point with you if you told them they were slaves. Uh, you know, it's like trying to sell an ice maker to an Eskimo. You know, hey, I don't need that, thanks. Got plenty of ice around here. Um, well, what is needed is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 10, 11, uh, concerning the Spirit, and he, when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now the word convict there means to convince, as in a court of law, when an attorney 
convinces the jury this client is either innocent or, or guilty. And so the Spirit has to come and convince those who are in slavery to sin about their true condition. You are in sin because you do not believe in Jesus who gave himself on the cross for you. Uh, You are in sin because you fall short of God's standard, his perfect righteousness that we must and cannot meet, and concerning the coming judgment. And so if you are burdened with those you know who don't know Jesus, then prayer is the first resort to say, Lord God, Holy Spirit, would you begin the process of convicting them of their sin, of your righteousness, and of the coming judgment. Now be careful when you begin to pray that. He might say, you're the one. (laughs) You go and tell them. And I think one effective way to, to try to begin that process if the opportunity comes up is the way that Ray Comfort does it in his Way of the Master. Many of you are familiar with it, but Ray makes the point that before people... Uh, can appreciate Jesus and his salvation, they need to feel convicted of their sin. And so what he does is he walks people through the Ten Commandments. And he shows them, you have violated all ten. Many, many times over. Uh, Some of you are going, well, man, I can't remember the Ten Commandments, especially when I'm nervous about sharing my faith. All you need to do is remember two. Jesus summed it all up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you can ask people, have you done that? All your life, honestly? And there's not an honest person around who can say, oh yeah, I've always loved God totally, and I've always loved my neighbor totally. No, we have not. Or you can go to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said, have you ever been angry with your brother? You've committed murder in God's sight. Have you ever lusted after a woman? You've committed adultery. You're guilty before God. And it's only when the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to see, oh my goodness, I am in big, big trouble. Then they're open to the wonderful message of God's salvation. The second thing our text makes very clear is that the penalty for rejecting God's means of salvation is death. Uh, I believe chapter 11, verse 1, should properly be translated. Now, the Lord had said to Moses, uh, and then it sums up what God has already said. And then in verse 4, it continues Moses' conversation with Pharaoh that begins uh, back in chapter 10. And he warns Pharaoh of God's threat of death for all the Egyptian firstborn, both of the people and the cattle, Uh, Pharaoh's heart is still hardened, and I think that's why it says Moses uh, goes from Pharaoh's presence in verse 8 of chapter 11. He goes out in hot anger. He is angry at this man's hardness of heart that Moses realizes is going to result in the death of many, many people in Egypt. Now, you may think, however, as I mentioned, that it was unfair of God to harden Pharaoh's heart, as it says in verse 10 of chapter 11, or even more, that it was unfair of God to take the firstborn 
of the slave girl behind the millstone, as it says in verse 5, or in chapter 12 it mentions the captive who was in the dungeon. I mean, that little slave girl, uh, Egyptian slave girl, probably hadn't even heard about the encounters between Moses and Pharaoh. Uh, She wouldn't have known about the requirement to put blood on the doorpost and the lintel to spare her firstborn. To back up and talk about Pharaoh first, uh, there is a mystery here that we cannot fully fathom, but I believe we have to accept it if we believe in the Word of God. And Paul sums up that mystery. He's talking about Pharaoh in the context in Romans chapter 9 and verse 18, where Paul says, So then he, God, has mercy on whom he, God, desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And yet at the same time, and here's the mystery, people are responsible for their sin. How do you bring those together? Well, in eternity, I'll tell you. I cannot do it now, but here's the point. You can't challenge God on his right to be God. God is God, and you're not God, and I'm not God. And what God's word says, I have to submit to. Some of it's hard. But Paul brings that up when he anticipates our objection in the very next verse in Romans 9.19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And Paul's answer in verse 20 is this. He doesn't give us the answer I wanted. He gives me this answer. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? In other words, Paul is saying, sit down and shut up. God is God, and you're not God, and you don't have the right to question the Almighty God. And it's when I finally realized that answer, way back as a college student, I used to box with, I thought, Paul, but I was boxing with God. And when I realized God's answer there, I became what is sometimes derogatorily called a Calvinist. I hadn't even read a page of John Calvin. I didn't know who the man was. I read the Bible, and that's what it said. And I had to say, that's the Word of God. And I submitted to the Word of God. Um, Regarding the slave girl, I admit, to me, this is more difficult even than Pharaoh to understand. The slave girl had no knowledge of God's impending judgment, And yet, she suffered the loss of her firstborn. Uh, Now, I realize the slave girl, like Pharaoh, was a sinner, like all of us are. She deserved God's judgment, but seemingly, she didn't even have a chance to hear about God's remedy, let alone apply it. All unbelievers have the witness of creation. You look around and you go, there has to be a God. This could not all have happened by accident. But that's not enough to save. That's only enough to condemn. Paul makes that argument in Romans 1. The only verse that I've ever found that uh, answers this, and it's not a total answer, but when Paul is 
talking to the people of Lystra, in Acts 14, 16, he says this, In the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways. That's all he says. <laughs> and he moves on. Talks then about the witness of creation. And the fact is, God has permitted many people around the world in past generations to live and to die without hearing the gospel. And that is a problem that I struggle with often, just to be honest. I don't have a total answer to that. I know this, though, and here's how I resolve it. God is fair and God is just. And nobody at the judgment will say, God dealt with me unfairly. Everyone will be judged justly. And I just have to leave the question there. Well, at the same time, we make every attempt we can to get the gospel to those who have yet to hear about our Lord and Savior. Now also, let me point out, the issue in salvation is always life and death. God made a distinction, he says in chapter 11, between Egypt and Israel. And the distinction meant salvation and life for Israel, judgment and death for Egypt. And God made that distinction. C.H. Uh, McIntosh observed, how little do men think of this? They imagine that real life ends when a man becomes a Christian Whereas God's word teaches us that it is only then that we can see life and taste true happiness. And then he cites 1 John 5.12, He who has the Son has the life. And he also cites John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. So, the people who need salvation are slaves. The penalty, if they reject God's means of salvation, is eternal death. The third thing here is the provision for God's means of salvation is the blood of an acceptable sacrifice. In chapter 12, God gives Moses specific directions concerning the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread that immediately followed it. And I can't cover all of it here in detail, but just note a few things. First of all, the lamb had to be sufficient for each household. There had to be enough for each household member to eat from the Passover lamb. And I believe that pictures this. It's not enough to grow up in a Christian family. You must personally put your trust in the lamb of God who was slain for your sins. A family blanket plan doesn't work got to be individual and then the lamb had to be an unblemished male a year old according to exodus 12 5 and that pictures christ who is our lamb our passover lamb he was without sin and if jesus had had sin of his own then he would have had to offer sacrifices for himself uh, as the jewish priests had to do in hebrews chapter 7 26 and 27 it explains for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, 
like those high priests, the Jewish high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You'll notice also that the lamb had to be chosen on the 10th day of the month, but he wasn't sacrificed until the 14th day of the month. So there was this time lag. And I believe that pictures the fact that Christ was marked out for death before he was actually slain. First uh, Peter 1, 19 through 21 says that we were redeemed with precious blood as a, a lamb unblemished and spotless like the Passover lamb, the blood of Christ. And then Peter explains, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Uh, John Salheimer makes the interesting suggestion that in Peter's reckoning, 2 Peter 3, he says, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And then uh, Dr. Salheimer adds, if Peter worked within the traditional chronology of the Bible, which reckons the coming of Christ at 4,000 years after creation, then his concept of Christ, the Passover lamb chosen before the creation of the world, would fit the requirement of the lamb chosen four days before the Passover. You see what he's saying? If with Peter, a thousand years is as a day, and there was 4,000 years from creation to Christ, then he perfectly fits the picture of this Passover lamb. Now, scholars debate the exact time the lamb was slain, but many scholars believe that Jesus actually died on the cross at the very moment the priests in the temple were slaughtering the Passover lambs. And then the um, Israelites were to put some of the blood on the two doorposts and the lintel of their houses. They were to roast the lamb with fire, eat it that night along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And the fire may represent the fact that Jesus, again, God's true Passover lamb, had to endure the fire of God's wrath uh, on our behalf on the cross. The bitter herbs were a reminder to the Jews of the bitterness of their centuries of slavery in Egypt. The unleavened bread reminded them of the purity that was required of those whom God had delivered from slavery. And the eating of bread in the Bible is always a picture of fellowship. And so we partake of the communion bread as a symbol of our fellowship with uh, Jesus, our crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Also, one other thing, note that the Passover was the beginning of the Jewish New Year. And uh, I, I believe that that's a picture again, that when you put your trust in Christ as your Passover lamb, that's the beginning of new life for you. A brand new life. Old things pass away, new things have come. And uh, you're now covered by the blood uh, so that God passes over your sins and doesn't bring the penalty of death to you. And that leads to the final truth here, and that is that the application of God's means of salvation is obedient faith. And I'm, I'm getting that Paul, uh, phrase from the Apostle Paul. Uh, in Romans 1.5 and in Romans 16.26, he talks about the obedience of faith. 
And obedient faith as opposed to the dead faith that James talks about that's just talk and doesn't uh, follow through with obedience. Uh, Just five things, and I have to hit these very quickly. First of all, obedient faith takes God at his word and acts on it. You know, to kill the lamb and uh, eat it in the prescribed manner, to take the blood, put it on your doorposts and lintel of your house, meant taking God at his word. That's what God said to do. You had to do it. And in Hebrews 11.28, it says, By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. And in Exodus 12.28, it underscores the point when it says, The sons of Israel went and did so. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now, that means if an Israelite had questioned it and said, this is kind of a dumb thing. I mean, why do I need to do this? You know, it doesn't make sense. Or why, why do I need blood? You know, that's kind of gross to stick blood on my doorpost. You know, it's going to look kind of weird. Or if an Israelite said, you know, I'm a vegan and I don't believe in that. I believe in animal rights and I'm not going to kill and eat some lamb. Well, in every case, their firstborn would die. To protect their firstborn, they had to do what God told them to do. In other words, their faith wasn't just intellectual. Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that, but I'm not going to do it. No, their faith had to be followed by obedience. They did it. And obedient faith takes God at his word and acts on it. Secondly, obedient faith is the only genuine faith. You know, to say uh, an Israelite said, you know, I really respect Moses and Aaron. They're the greatest guys. I, I just think they're wonderful. But he doesn't put the blood on the doorpost. His son died. Uh, James and Paul were not at odds. Sometimes people think they were, but they both believed that genuine saving faith obeys God. It always does. If you say, oh, I believe, and then you just go right on living like you used to live with no repentance, you don't believe. Belief means you turn around, you repent of your sin. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is very familiar, great verse. I hope you all memorize it. For by grace... You've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. But then you ought to tack on verse 10 to your memorization. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Saving faith is by grace through faith alone. In Christ alone, it's God's gift. You can't do anything to earn it. But once you have it, you obey God. And that's exactly what James meant when he said, uh, faith without works cannot save. It's dead faith. Third thing, obedient faith is seen in the ongoing holiness of God's people. And I didn't read it, but that's pictured in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As you know, leaven in the Bible is... Most often a symbol for sin. Um, A good observation again from C.H. McIntosh. He said the Israelite did not put away leaven in order to be saved, but because he was saved. So it's a result of salvation. And 
he points out that the penalty for refusing to put away the, the leaven and observe this feast was that an Israelite would be cut off from his people. And um, he says that corresponds now to the church should put out of fellowship any who persist in uh, sin, in known sin in their lives. The Passover, with its application then of the blood of the Lamb, pictured our salvation when we apply Christ's blood to our hearts. But the Passover then is followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which pictures that those who are under the blood of Christ must live pure lives before God. We have to clean out the leaven of sin and be a holy people. And then the fourth lesson here on obedient faith, it passes the faith down to our children. And in verses 24 through 27, the Lord instructs in later generations, when your kids ask, what is the meaning of this rite of Passover? You say, go ask your mother. No, that's not the, not the direction. Fathers were to instruct their children. And you should be well instructed yourself in the gospel so that you can explain it well to your children. When they ask, for example, why do we do baptism? Why do we do communion? Great opportunity to tell them the true meaning of those uh, rites that we observe. Now, to partake, to be baptized, to partake of the Lord's Supper, I think children need to be old enough to understand the gospel clearly. They need to give some evidence in their lives that they have personally believed in Jesus and repented of their sins, uh, some evidence of a changed heart, uh, and grasp the basic meaning of both of those ordinances. But that should be the job of fathers in the homes, or if there's no father, of the mothers, to explain to your children the, the meaning of the gospel, that what Christ did for us. And then finally, obedient faith results in God's people possessing the wealth of the nations. And it's mentioned twice in our text, in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, and then at the end, in chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, it's repeated that the Israelites asked the Egyptians for articles of silver, gold, and clothing, and God granted them favor so that the Egyptians complied. And I don't know whether the Egyptians were saying, good riddance, take everything I got and get out of here before I die, uh, that may have been some of their mindset. Or they, it says in chapter 11 that Moses was highly esteemed by the Egyptians. Anyway, however it happened, God provided Israel with what they needed to sustain them in the wilderness. But also, if you've ever wondered, where'd they get all that stuff to build the tabernacle? Well, here's where they got it. The Egyptians gave it to them and they built the tabernacle. I think the application for us as the church is this. When we obey the Great Commission, um, God blesses us with the wealth of the nations. Not their money, but their souls. As people from every tongue, tribe, uh, language, from every nation come to Jesus, it builds the temple of God, the church of God. And we reap the benefit of that is God gets the glory.
A prominent soap manufacturer and a, a Christian man were once walking along a street, and the Christian was trying to share the gospel with this businessman. And uh, the businessman objected and said, well, if what you say is true, then why is there so much evil in the world? And the Christian was racking his brain trying to think, how do I answer that? And they came by a little boy who was sitting on the curb, and the boy was filthy, dirty. His hands, his face, his clothing were filthy. And the Christian then said to this businessman, um, you know, I thought you manufactured soap. And the businessman said, I do. And the Christian said, well, then why is that little boy so dirty? And the businessman said, well, he's got to apply the product. And the Christian said, exactly. And those in the world must apply the shed blood of Christ to their hearts in order for them to be saved and to live lives that are good, that are holy, that are right. And so the crucial question I want to ask each of you this morning is, have you applied the sacrificial blood of Jesus to your heart? That is the most important question in the world for you to answer. Not that, well, I grew up in a Christian family. That's nice. That's helpful. That's good. But you must apply the blood of Christ to cover your sins. And then you have to exercise obedient faith by putting your trust in Christ and living a life that is pleasing to him. I think that is the message that the Passover gives to us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace in Christ. I would pray if any are here who have never trusted in Jesus as their sin bearer, you would convict them of their sin and then you would show them your abundant grace at the cross of Christ that they might Trust in him and experience eternal life. And help us as your people, Lord, to well represent you in this world we live in, that our lives would not in any way smudge the testimony of the blood of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.